Welcome back to the Whereas Hoops podcast. I'm Noah Cohan. And I'm John Early. And we are so excited today to be joined by Abigail Smithson, uh, visiting a professor of art at Lyon College, a, a visual artist in her own right. Um, her practice is rooted in the translation and act of making records. Through collecting, photographing, writing, and drawing, she disrupts the traditional ideas of representation. She embodies a location and a time period, creating a document in both a nuanced and abstract way. Dear Adam Silver, named for the commissioner of the National Basketball Association, is a body of work she developed as a response to the game of basketball. In it, Abigail explores the court as a place where human nature and social politics are an undeniable part of the game, as well as a space for social engagement to occur. Using both writing and visual work, as well as her own podcast, which is excellent, and we'll talk about that, also uh, entitled Dear Adam Silver, Abigail reflects on the role of the human body and the question of representation in the discussion around both fine art and sports. Rethinking issues of race, patriotism, and loss, she questions where the boundaries of the court mimic the boundaries of the country. Abigail, thank you for joining us. Noah and John, such a pleasure to be here. I have to say I've recorded a lot of podcast episodes, but have not always been the guests. And it's really nice to get to join Whereas Hoops and uh, you too. I'm so excited about the work you're doing and I couldn't be happier to be with you today. Yeah, I'm loving having you on as a guest, having been a guest on your podcast, not once, but twice, once with regard to uh, my book, which came out in 2019. And then um, John and I had the had the distinct honor of talking about Whereas Hoops on the Dear Adam Silver uh, podcast this past summer. Um, it's really a great list, and I, I urge anyone who doesn't have it in their pod catcher to, to add it. Um, she's had tremendous guests on the pod, um, people like journalist Julie DeCaro, Claude Johnson, the founder of the Black Fives Foundation, um, historian Andrew Moranis, uh, Douglas Hartman, an academic of sports studies like myself, just a just a diverse and wonderful group of guests that you've had over the years, just different approaches to the game of basketball. Visual artists as well, names that probably John is more familiar with than I am, um, who've been on the podcast. It's a it's a great listen, um, whether you like art or not. Although I think if you listen, you will come to appreciate the intersections of basketball and art quite a bit more. I can only hope that that is the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, and I've been so lucky that, uh, yeah, the, the range of guests and the people that have been willing to share their work, their thoughts, all of that, it's just so, so rich. Yeah, Abigail, could you share with us a little bit more about the podcast in particular, its origins, um, and also how you kind of conceive of that as part of your creative practice um, as a maker and as a visual artist? Yes, absolutely. So in 2018 or fall of 2017, excuse me, I had been writing letters to Adam Silver uh, in response to the league-wide memo he sent out in the fall of 2017 reminding NBA players that they had to stand for the national anthem and that that was a league rule. So the NFL didn't have a league rule, which is why when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling, there was a lot of uh, sort of scrambling to figure out how to respond as a league because there wasn't anything in place. The NBA had a, a, a rule in place. So he had sent out this league-wide memo reminding players that they had had to stand and other team personnel. And I was feeling a little disappointed by that because I was hoping 
you know, I just thought that there was a moment there that could be opened up for a conversation about the role of the national anthem in sports and that wondering why people are not wondering why, but addressing why people might not want to stand for it and might feel differently about the national anthem. So uh, I think that I was disappointed that he sent out that memo and was reinforcing that rule. And so I wrote this letter to him, which was just something I kept to myself for a while. But then I started writing other letters to him that were weird, you know, and just sharing things about, you know, different parts of my life and, you know, just different aspects of things. He became kind of like a dear Abby, but I wasn't actually sending the letters. I was just using him as someone who I thought might be on the other end. Uh, and then at the same time, I was really trying to figure out a way to be a part of sports media. How could I fit myself into the sports media landscape? What, <clears throat> if any, value did I bring to sports media as an artist? And I felt really encouraged by another artist friend of mine, uh, Annie Mae Johnston, uh, who teaches at the University of Texas in Austin. She's a printmaker. And she was really encouraging me to just make work about trying to get work in sports media, that my artwork could be about not be getting, you know, rejection letters or no responses or whatever it was, or just the, the failures of trying to insert myself into the sports media landscape. So out of that came this idea to create a podcast. I think podcasts are an amazing medium for getting information, for sharing information. The fact that I can be listening to podcasts uh, from anywhere in the world uh, is such an exciting thing. And I uh, have really come to appreciate as a listener. And so it was a way that I liked getting information. So I felt like it was something that I could feel good about making for a long time before this. I had a blog and I never wanted to, uh, I mean, I just didn't want to read other people's blogs. So it was hard to pitch my own blog when I didn't want to read anyone else's. So I really felt strongly that you know, I could share this proudly that the medium of podcast was something I could get behind because it was a way that I really enjoyed interacting with with different information and learning. And so that just made me excited. I also have to mention my sister, who is a basketball fan as well, had a had an exciting idea for a podcast called The Hair Up There about NBA fashion and uh, style choices. And so she had wanted to start a podcast about the NBA uh, before I did. And anyways, that kind of planted a seed in my head that, yeah, other people have, you know, she didn't end up doing it, but other people, other people have podcasts and this is something that I could do. And there's this space where art and sports aren't really being discussed side by side and I could fill that space. So it just seemed like this um, logical decision in many ways. And I also felt that I, if I did my podcast, there would always be a component of social practice, of engagement outside my studio practice with other people. And that, uh, so no matter what else I was working on, if I continue with that, it would be uh, sort of, I would always have that to fall back on as, as a social engagement aspect. So that's how it kind of all came to be and how it was built into the practice. Yeah, and you mentioned podcasting being a kind of social practice um, for you, is that part of kind of the larger ecosystem of your um, creative practice as a visual artist? Um, or do you kind of see your work as a visual artist running more, I don't know, in parallel parallel tracks in terms of your work as a, as a podcaster? That's great. I think I would like to think that I'm learning the art of asking a question when I am podcasting and coming up with questions in an artful way. And so in that sense, I think it is built into my practice and that I'm thinking about it as another arm of how I am creative. Uh, 
but I also think that it's very different making work that you're hoping might end up in a gallery or might be shared in a fine art setting versus podcasting. But it's all coming from the same place, I think. And so I would say that there's a lot of crossover and this desire to create community uh, and to um, create a platform for other artists. I think that it's been exciting to me sometimes when I get to see that other people have included my podcast on their CVs or something like that in a art world that feels like there is so much scarcity and that so much of, uh, you know, there's a lot of rejection. It's really nice to email people and ask them to be on the show. Even if they say no, that's fine. It's just this idea of like, I'm providing, I'm like opening a space for them. Uh, and and all, all podcasters are in many ways. So I, I really find that that makes me feel like a good sort of peer artist. We have obviously these intersecting interests with regard to the game of basketball, um, sort of public facing work that includes, um, creative visual elements. John is sort of more of the piece of our team that handles that, but I'm certainly on board. I think it's really important, vital to what we do. But you also have an interest um, specifically in St. Louis with regard to the World's Fair. I know you spent some time here, though you're not from here, nor, nor do you live here now. Um, you have spent some time in St. Louis and you have a specific interest in um, the role of the Fort Shaw women's basketball team. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, uh, so I was in uh, St. Louis in 2018, the summer of 2018 for a month staying at Paul Art Space, which is in Florissant, just outside of St. Louis. And I think I arrived there, touched down, not having ever been to St. Louis before, just overwhelmed with just all the things I needed to learn about St. Louis. I would not say it was the most prolific period of time for me because I was taking in so much because it was such a new place. And there was so much to sort of try to wrap my head around, around how St. Louis came to be, around how it functions, all these histories. Uh, and it wasn't until after I left that I discovered the story of the Fort Shaw uh, women's basketball team. And I think that so much of my interest in basketball has come to end up being about the history of the game. I still, of course, love watching it uh, and, and sort of contemporary discussions around basketball and all of that. I think there's just so much value in understanding what happened before and how we've arrived at the point that we have around women's sports, around how racism functions in professional sports, including basketball. And I think that reading about the Fort Shaw women's basketball team, learning about how Indian schools operated and how basketball was used as a way to actually sort of kill the culture of indigenous people. Uh, and that there is this uh, team that was sort of won the world's championship at the, at the World's Fair for being the best basketball team uh, there and having competed and celebrating, wanting to, for me, wanting to celebrate those individual and team uh, accomplishments, all that they did, and also realized that they were operating within the system of, of racism and that they were, um, you know, this, these schools were meant to, to destroy this culture and, and create uh, assimilation with Indigenous people into uh, huge quote marks here, American culture, <laughs> uh, which is not a thing, really. Uh, I mean, it, it's just so, I think that uh, there's just so much within the story of uh, 
basketball, this was of course in 1904, basketball being a new sport at that time. And uh, these women being taught this game uh, in addition to many other things that they were taught at the school. And then, you know, having the chance to show off their skills at the World's Fair, really exciting uh, story. And also just wanting to always put that in the larger context of, of how racism has functioned in this country and how this history of this team is tied to this larger history. So I think that that's what's so exciting to me about studying history through sports is that it's not just about that game. It's about everything else that's built into it. And so uh, I think the more particular you get sometimes, the more detailed you get, the more general you can speak. And so I, I've really, uh, the story has just had an impact on me in that way and has been compelling. And I also think, you know, it's not a reg, it's not a sports history story that's included in a, in I guess as much as it should be in our canon of sports history and so I think that just wanting to interact with it and draw attention to it what these women did uh, and the context in which they did it and how uh, those speak to larger issues and so that's that's why I've come back to it repeatedly and having you know also discovering the story right after having been in St. Louis it was like uh, how do I get back how do I go how do I make this happen because you know it just um sometimes a place gets under your skin a little bit and you want to keep interacting with it and, and responding to it. Yeah, for those who are unfamiliar, um, the athletics programs were often a prominent part of, of Indian schools for the reasons that Abigail suggested that it was a way to kind of, they thought that to Americanize um, the, the, these young people who had um, in many cases been forcibly removed from their families elsewhere in the country. Um, the most famous Indian school athletic program was at Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. They had a very prominent football team that for many years would play against college teams. And the college teams from the Northeast in that period were the strongest in the country uh, and uh, often would defeat them. And, and in, the, in the journalism of the time, it was uh, very racist depictions of like Cowboys versus Indians anytime the Indian school played against one of these um, universities. And the, and the star player uh, was uh, often, or, or at least for at least four years, I guess, for Carlisle Indian School was, was Jim Thorpe, who would uh, go on to be an Olympian, win multiple gold medals um, for the U.S. Uh, despite what had happened to him, I suppose, uh, having been part of the, the Indian schools. But to return to the the Fort Shaw context and and your interest in it, I think you're right that it is it is so deeply buried. Even people who know things about the World's Fair know things about the Anthropology Days. You know these these racist exhibition of people from black and brown uh, parts of the world, right? Don't know about the this basketball exhibition, but it was so popular that as you said, they were deemed world's champions for having defeated all the, the teams of white women that they played against. Uh, they were given a trophy, which uh, still exists. And I believe you can still go see through the Missouri Historical Society. Um, so they were kind of a big deal in the scope of the fair, like that people who came to the fair, one of the things they often, and by people I'm meaning you know, middle to upper class white St. Louisans who are the primary audience. Um, one of the things they wanted to do kind of was to see this, this ex exhibition of, of basketball, which as you said, is, it was then a relatively new game, just what, 10, 12 or well, 10 or 11 years old, something like that. Um, and I think another, another piece of context, if I can, just to, to put on my nerd hat here, is that at this period, oftentimes women's basketball was not viewed by the public, right? Because it was deemed indecent, right? So, so we're thinking about the intersectional identity of these women, Part of the reason they were they were gawked at, right? Part of the reason that it was even allowed to gawk at them was because they weren't, uh, you know, considered quite fully 
women in the sense that white women would have been. So in an era when, you know, there was all kinds of pseudoscience about how women's uteruses would fall out if they worked out, if they exercised too hard, right? So there, it's a fascinating, a detailed layered history. And I have taught courses on basketball at this university and didn't know <laughs> about this history. And I'm so excited to, to finally get in the classroom myself and teach about this. So um, I'm, I'm totally with you nerding out <laughs> on this issue. Um, but I think um, John has some, some questions for you on then how this topic intersects with, with your artistic practice. So I'll, I'll defer to him. Well, and before moving on to that, Noah, I mean, I don't know if, if I even realize like how close in proximity actually to where each of us are sitting now that those, the Fort Shaw games took place. I mean, literally a couple of hundred yards from where, from where I'm sitting kind of right where Washington University um, meets up uh, with Forest Park on its Western edge, um, which is now just the like big, beautiful, lavish homes and wonderful landscaped um, gardens and grasses. But, um, but yeah, the fact that it took place, you know, again, not just kind of at the World's Fair, but, you know, just thinking about you and teaching these classes as well, just like you could almost look out the window of your classroom and say like <laughs> a lot of the games took place like right there. But Abigail, speaking of um, kind of research, um, could you describe to us kind of the relationship um, in your work? And that could be, you know, podcasting, but then also um, as a visual artist, uh, how you view the relationship between um, your creative practice and, and research? Yeah, I think such a part of the, the podcast and just in general, I think sometimes artists have a chip on their shoulder about the arts don't get the same coverage that other, even though there's storytelling, even though there's uncovering of information and drawing attention to different events or different circumstances throughout history or contemporary, that like it's not, it doesn't get the same coverage that, you know, journalism gets, of course. Um, but just this idea of the podcast, um, feels like a really important place to draw attention to things that I think are overlooked sometimes or not discussed in, or that don't have, don't get the same amount of time spent with them maybe, or that they deserve. Um, so I think that there's, that's just something like the slowing down and, and, and the spending time with individual pieces of art, with bodies of work can that sort of demand that you, uh, if you don't have the knowledge to understand maybe exactly the work, maybe you have to read a little something to figure it out, something like that. And I think that that's something that interviewing a bunch of artists, I do, and with, with authors, I read their whole book before they come on, you know, but with uh, artists, I think often, you know, you have to, um, it just makes me have to research things that come up in their work, absolutely, so that I can ask questions that I feel like can open the conversation up. Um, of course, some episodes are just about what happened, you know, in the finals or something like that. Uh, but I think that there's just, um, that art can require that of, of like a viewer who's trying to engage. And I think as a non-player myself, as someone who's not directly, like I've inserted myself a little bit into basketball rather than, you know, stepping into an established space. And that's something that's like a constant battle <laughs> to continue to do that, to make space, try and make space for myself. Um, I, I think that I, I feel like an obligation to, to research uh, and, and a need to know how the game came to be. It's very different effects on different people, what it means for many different people across 
uh, race lines, culture lines, uh, internationally. Like, I think I just feel this really strong um, obligation, which I, I really enjoy reading. So that's fine. <laughs> but I, I just feel like I owe it to the game because I don't play. And it's not sort of something that's built into my life in this way that players might have to go to practice. Um, I feel like part of me that players get to give back to the game every time they play, kind of, that they're giving something and that uh, a part of my giving to the game is, is understanding it in the most uh, well-rounded way possible. And that that's through research and all the little all the events along the way and all the people that have given themselves to the game, I, I should know their stories. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that too, Abigail, in terms of how that connects to what you were saying earlier in terms of kind of viewing these endeavors as a kind of social practice. So something that's, that's touching on and engaged with kind of broader, the broader community, broader histories of um, a place. Um, but also, and I don't know if you found this to be the case, but um, there are, basketball is one of those subjects, I feel like an art that can be over aestheticized. And so you see kind of the same, the same kind of types of work, not that it's intentionally derivative, but it's, if it includes a basketball or a rim, then it's kind of like, or a backboard, then it's like grouped mm -hmm. into like the category of art and sport and basketball. Um, and many of those things are kind of wonderful and beautiful to look at, but I do wonder about um, what's informing work like that. Um, and so again, I, I find it um, heartening um, and just like intellectually, I think, rich that the way in which you're kind of thinking more broadly uh, about the sport beyond maybe just kind of the, the surface aesthetics of it. Yes, I think that I'm the surface aesthetics are romantic and I find them compelling, you know, as a fan, as someone who thinks the game is beautiful and like has spent a lot of time looking at hoops and things like that. I also just think that like beyond that, you know, um, just thinking about the work that you're making and what's missing from Forest Park and what has been missing there. There's also just like when we build on land, like something came there something was there before. So I just think, you know, there's this court in uh, the Lower East Side that I've had a fascination with um, that's uh, named after FDR's mother, uh, Sarah, Sarah Delano Roosevelt Park uh, in the Lower East Side um, that I just, the basketball courts there are beautiful. And I've walked by this court a bunch and the courts are kind of sunk in a little bit. And there's just a nice group of different people coming to this park for different reasons and a lot of things taking place around the basketball and it's just a nice place you can there's benches that face right into the court you can just sit there and watch and then you know you've got traffic on both sides of you there's just a lot of bustling but you're kind of surrounded by trees at the same time it's just a buzzing place a place buzzing with like life and some of that life is expressed through basketball and that court was built on what used to be tenements. And before that was a mass grave uh, for African-Americans on the island of Manhattan that were buried there. And if I didn't like get sort of set off by the feel of this court, this I got this feeling that was so powerful that made me go back there over and over again and sit there. 
I wouldn't have want, you know, I, then I read this like biography of Sarah Delano Roosevelt and uh, just want to learn more about her and then how the park came to be and things like that. It's just like, there's so much history in all of these places, whether something was there or not. I just think that that makes for really important, rich history and makes me feel like uh, more engaged with this country and all of the wrongs that have been done. And also, I just, it just makes the world a more interesting place to me. So in, in part, the research is selfish. And in part, it's just, I feel like I want to um, really know basketball inside and out. So I can't set a screen for anyone uh, or anything in that area. But I feel like I can talk about things in this other way and the reading and the research really help with that. And also just makes me find really compelling places almost everywhere I go. Uh, speaking of places and place-based work, uh, can, can you tell us uh, two things about your, your month in, in St. Louis? Can you tell us a little bit more about what you were working on when you were in town and you had re your residency at the Paul Art Space? And then also, um, if if you can, uh, your engagement with Forest Park. What what chance you had to engage with the park, and what your takeaways were from it? Yeah, I uh, so I actually applied to Polar Space and then had to defer my acceptance for about nine months. So of course, the idea of what I was planning on doing changed a little bit over time. Um, but I had ended up one of the main parts of my work was I. So I was coming into St. Louis proper a lot from Florissant and realizing sort of how sort of disconnected the city is from the county in many ways or how challenging it can be without a car to get from outside the, the city from the suburbs into the uh, county or into the city. So I was making a lot of drawings of nets, but the nets ended up being basketball. I mean, they were inspired by basketball nets, but they ended up being kind of like maps. And so that like each little section of the net, which essentially is like lines to dots, lines to dots, lines to dots, ended up being looking kind of like a road. Um, and so they were sort of these very abstracted um, maps that I'm working on, which was only after the fact that I realized it had to do with kind of feeling isolated in this place. So, you know, I was so close to the city and also felt really, it was a real challenge to actually be there uh, for me as, a, as I didn't have a car. So I think that just thinking about sort of those separations and, and somehow putting basketball, projecting basketball onto that. And I also had collected a net from a neighbor. So that, so Paul our space is in a house in Florissant in a neighborhood that every, you know, that's just a, a regular neighborhood. And so I found an old rusted chain net in front of, on a hoop in front of this neighbor's house. And I switched it out for another net. And I ended up making some, some cyanotype prints of this chain net that I was, I called Skyhook. Uh, Cause I was thinking about, well, the hooks from the chain nets, of course, they're all just hooks that hook together. And also I had just started, I actually recorded my first episode of Dear Adam Silver in Florissant in this living room uh, there with my fellow uh, basketball fan and a colleague at the residency. But I was also just thinking about other people. So I was thinking about Adam Silver, but I was thinking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and other people that are, you know, these iconic figures in basketball and have also done so much outside of basketball and, and, and thinking that maybe Kareem Abdul-Jabbar might 
might like me pushing Adam Silver or <laughs> might like me asking him, you know, just based on the books I've read by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and some of the things that he's written outside of his books and things like that, that I was just tr trying to connect to other players um, and people that I felt a distance from, but that I could, I felt a reverence for. And so these, these postcards that I made outdoors with this, with this, um, chain net were for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and called Skyhook number one, number two, number three. And I think, um, yeah, it was just a way to sort of honor, honor him. Kareem is so fascinating because he was so disliked during his playing career. I mean, part of it was the contrast with Magic, right? Because Magic was so friendly to all the press and, you know, smiling and happy all the time. And Kareem was, you know, this sort of reclusive intellectual. But now in his sort of second life where he can just focus on being an intellectual, he's so dynamic and, and involved in so many different projects and and. Um, you know, it helps that my values and his seem to line up almost all the time, but it's, it's so, uh, incredible to see what a sort of force he's become off the court after being, you know, one of the three best basketball players in human history. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. Absolutely. And I think that when I had been in at LSU and in Baton Rouge, collecting these old basketball nets from people's houses and schools and stuff, I felt like sometimes I that white privilege played a role in the reception that I got when I was asking to go onto people's property and switch something out. And that maybe if my name hadn't been Abigail Smithson, it had been Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I was leaving notes in people's mailboxes asking if they would contact me about their basketball net. I might not have gotten that many responses because how racism and stereotypes and all that function um, in the United States. And so I think that I, I had done some research about him and, and uh, felt this need to acknowledge him, not just for what he brought to the basketball court, but beyond that so much he has given us. Uh, and I, I just wanted to um, do something to, to honor that and to also just build that connection for myself to him even more, even if he doesn't know about it. My whole work is about a lot of it's about doing things for people without them knowing it seems a little bit, but Maybe Adam Silver's aware. Who knows? <laughs> so Abigail, when you were in St. Louis during that time, um, did you engage in, in basketball, either as a player or as a fan in any way? And, and as a kind of a supplement to that question, like currently, could you talk to us about the degrees to which you're, you're playing, even if it's a game of horse and, and also um, your, your fandom? Yes, um, I want to actually touch on the fact that I did spend time in Forest Park as well uh, while I was there. Uh, a few different days, we went to a, like a Shakespeare, I think it was Romeo and Juliet actually that was in the park. We went to see that, um, had a nice, nice long walk around that, not a reflecting pool, but that pool in front of the museum, um, spent a lot of time there and uh, went to the museum. And, and just walked around a good bit. I mean, I don't think I, I noticed then that there weren't basketball um, courts, but there was a basketball hoop at this residency. And like one of the first things I did when I got there was shoot some hoops. Uh, and I think that, you know, that was something we did during the day. I mean, I happened to be there with someone who also loved basketball and we had a lot to talk about, but, you know, during the day we were taking breaks, playing basketball. I mean, not playing a full on game, but just shooting around. There was a lot of Kobe impressions. My, uh, my, here, who's now one of my closest friends there, Brian Tran, like was a huge Kobe fan. And so there's a lot of, you know, sort of impersonations going on. Um, and 
you know, the finals were happening at that time too. So we watched the Warriors play the Cavs in uh, the 2018 finals. Um, so that's kind of how basketball was functioning for me at the time. And so that was my trip to, to Forest Park. Um, and I think that I was sort of taken aback. I mean, it's grand in its sense of its scale. It just, you know, in the neighborhood that it's nearby. And I had seen Meet Me in St. Louis when I was little and just remembering kind of the imagery from that and driving on those, um, those tree-lined streets. Like there's just a, a little bit of a, it feels like a throwback a little bit to another time, which I don't think is, as we know from recent political slogans, like that's not, we don't want to go back to another time at all, but there's like this quality of um, datedness and also grandness to it that feels really, uh, that really stood out for me when I was there. Yeah, I mean, in our research, just finding out how, you know, the park was basically um, imagined and brought to life by um, some of the richest St. Louisans to be their kind of uh, sort of remote play space. Um, there's still a bit of that vibe. You know, you can imagine a horse drawn buggy <laughs> sort of uh, cruising through the park, which was initially how I think they expected people to engage with it. And it's, you know, obviously things have, have changed a lot, um, but it's still, yeah, I agree. It still has that sort of sense of itself, a kind of uh, nostalgia for a sort of upper-class white leisure, <laughs> I think is still a little bit part of the aesthetic, even though, you know, a much more diverse uh, demographic uses the park on a daily basis. I yeah. definitely uh, have felt that way in the park at certain times. So. And, and the fact that there until four years ago was a Confederate monument and a road called Confederate Drive certainly didn't help with that. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And I, I want to mention that my own relationship with playing basketball has always been a sort of a mystery as I figured out because I just don't want anyone guarding me ever. So I never want to play. <laughs> um, I do love spending time on courts and just hanging out horse for sure. Just shooting baskets, like all of it has such a satisfying, beautiful feel. Um, in my sports and art class, which you two visited earlier this semester, my students have made their own basketball nets using uh, patterns from this publication by the Newcraft Artists in Action. And they just hung, those nets were just hung by facilities uh, here at Lyon College just the other day. And so now these courts here have these handmade nets. And so I've been spending some time out there uh, shooting hoops with students. My parents were in town this week. I took them there. Uh, and so I think that it's just about being in that place, visiting that place that's compelling to me rather than I have no desire to win or beat anyone at anything pretty much <laughs> or be beaten. Like I just, uh, that's not what it's about, but I, I really like spending time in these places and, and interacting with people in other ways on the courts. You're mentioning your students. Uh, we, we should totally bring that up, especially because of what we just talked about, right? This idea of Forest Park as sort of calcified in a certain sense right, and the resistance to, to putting in basketball courts, courts maybe being part of that, because I also think basketball has that, <laughs> you know, there's the fact that in the NBA rule book, there are still technically only 13 rules, even though they all have a billion sub rules, because of 
a nostalgic throwback to James Naismith's original 13 rules, right? And and fans often, though leagues change their rules every year, mm-hmm. fans often have a sense that the game is somehow static, right? That that sport is somehow, once it's sort of made, it, it stays that thing. But one of the really interesting things that I've heard you talk about, and and, and I should mention here, I guess that John and I had the, the, the great fortune to be invited to, to zoom into your classroom one day and learn more about this, um, is, is you've been talking with your students about the fluidity of games and creative expression as being part of games and games changing, right? And, and I believe you tasked your own students with, with designing their own game, right? So can you say a little bit more about that and how you think about uh, sport as creative expression and, and how it's like physically manifested? Yes, absolutely. And this is my first time teaching that class. So it was really was trying to see, you know, have them recognize that creativity comes in all forms and that the things that we see as established as regimented, you know, sports inherently have a bunch of rules and feel like a very controlled space, but they started with someone needing like the, the project name was the need of a new game because that was a chapter in James Smith, James Naismith's memoir, because he was tasked with figuring out how to make this game that could be played indoors um, during the winter for for uh, YMCA students. Um, so I think that I just wanted them to get this idea that like everything is fluid, even when we have a really set way of understanding how it exists. Even if we know we're going to turn on the TV or we're going to go to the court or the field and certain things are going to happen, there are people that have made changes to these games over time. And at some point, this game didn't exist um, in this form. So of course, games like basketball existed long before James Naismith um, and, and, and indigenous people and um the Americas were playing these games, but I think that uh, just that realization that these things came from somewhere or established from somewhere and named from somewhere and that everything has a beginning and there's no reason why they can't make up their own game or change something that they think is is wrong about a game or contribute in some way. And so I've, I've kind of started describing the shared creativity between art and sports as like cultural offerings. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just that, that even though they're bringing something different to the table, like there's an individual or a group or whoever it is behind these ideas that are being offered and changing our culture. And so I think that it's important for the students to know that they can do that within sports and that these, these, these rules are not set in stone. Um, and that there's so much, you know, even just dunking and then the outlawing of dunking and then dunking coming back. It's just everything can, everything could change. Basketball could look very different in a hundred years. And I'm not saying it should, or, you know, there's of course things that I, you know, feel strongly about. Um, and that's why I wrote to Adam Silver. So I think that just, just knowing that um, behind these games, there are people and those people are, are impacting and affecting and, and building or, or destroying or whatever it is. And I think that it's important that, that we all sort of get behind this idea that we can be a part of those decisions and we can be a part of those changes if we, if we care enough and if we engage enough. Abigail, from previous conversations, kind of turning to the landscape of the NBA, know that you're a beautiful Suns. landscape beautiful landscape. <laughs> just wanted to know how you're feeling about um the suns the phoenix sun season thus far um and also what other either teams players or kind of storylines that you've been following or interested in uh this nba season yeah so 
um, we all met when I was in Tucson, but originally being from the Bay Area, when the Suns play the Warriors, 15% of my heart roots for the Suns, 85% is for the Warriors. So last week was a real, was a trying week because they played oh, yeah. each other back-to-back games <laughs> um, because they're both so exciting. Both those teams are incredibly exciting right now. I think that in some ways, the Warriors have come a little bit out of nowhere with their current record, um, just not making the finals. Um, sorry, not <laughs> got used to them being in the finals, not making the playoffs last year and not even getting close to making the playoffs the year before. And me being kind of sad every time they were on national television and being like, can't they adjust the schedule once the season starts? Because this isn't a great, this isn't a great look. Um, the Warriors have been so exciting. The Suns have also been so fun and it's also just like you know they had so much momentum last year going into the finals with the bucks and to to go up 2-0 and then lose um so dramatically it just it's nice to see how hard they've come out this year and how they're they're really um yeah they're playing beautiful basketball absolutely super exciting to watch and um i hope Oh, God only knows, like if things continue this way, it's inevitable that the Warriors and the Suns will be like in the Western Conference finals together. And it's just going to be a rough, a rough series for me. But I've both teams have been so enjoyable. And I know that also the Suns feel as though they're not getting the amount of attention they deserve for what they're accomplishing. And I absolutely agree with that. And I think that uh, they're super, they're superstars. Their stars also don't get the same amount of attention that um, Steph does or uh, LeBron would or the narratives around them. Um, and I think part of it could be um, a, a smaller market team. I don't know, um, but I think that uh, they're super exciting and I hope they go really, really far. And I can't wait for Clay Thompson to be back. I mean, who knows what's gonna happen, but it's just fun seeing the Warriors play beautiful, engaged, like exciting basketball and feed off of each other. There's a lot, there seems to be a lot of good energy on both teams and um, it's really exciting. On the exciting subject of, time to be a fan of both teams. On the subject of the Warriors, uh, I, in, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was a um, Golden State Warriors game night media intern. So uh, this, I went, I went to every home game and basically I passed, passed out stat sheets to the, to the members of the media. Yeah. Um, this was, you know, before even the, we believe warriors, this was the 04, 05 season. Okay. Uh, wow. I believe they acquired Baron Davis at midseason, but um, anyway, uh, you know, that was, it was an Oakland team uh, that had, been long suffering, but it had these dedicated East Bay, seemed seemingly mostly East Bay, really diverse fan base that really cared about this really frustrating um, franchise. And um, you know, since then, it, it, the whole landscape of basketball has been utterly transformed. Um, you know, they they won all those championships in Oakland, obviously, but then they moved back to San Francisco, and people forget that they originally uh, came to San Francisco from Philadelphia and played in uh, my favorite arena name in NBA history, the Cow Palace. Um, I've been to a circus <laughs> there. I've been to a circus at the Cow Palace, yeah. And now they're in this, uh, you know, Chase Center, this, uh, you know, sparkling uh, sort of ode to tech money. 
Um, but they're wearing these throwback uniforms this season that throw back to the Cow Palace days with the red uh, red lettering on the chest, which hadn't been sort of part of the color scheme um, for a long, long time. So, so there, so I'm having this aesthetic dissonance this season when I'm watching the Warriors. You know, they're the team. Uh, you know, in, Steph in his sort of full full form again. Uh, Draymond. Uh, doing great and clay on the way right there's a there's a vibe of this team like the team that i saw rise from nothing in oakland but then there's this <laughs> the, the the sort of combination of the the gaudiness of this new arena and its new sort of socioeconomic context right and in relation to this vision of a different very different san francisco in in the jerseys that they're wearing so i just wondered you're from that area what your thoughts are how how, how that makes you feel if you're suffering that same feeling of dissonance about them Yes. I mean, I think on a, on a play to play basis, I am not always putting it in the context of how gentrification has functioned in the Bay area and how, um, how sort of, I, I don't, icky it feels. I think that's the best word for me to use that the warriors moved from Oakland to San Francisco and are still trying to keep Oakland as part of their identity. And this, in this way, it's like, it's one thing if you move across the country, but it's like you're 15 minutes from this other place and you're putting this Oakland on your, like they have the Oakland logo on the court that says Oakland, but you're not in Oakland. Like, I just, I think that, um, you know, I really love the city jerseys and that sort of movement within the NBA to acknowledge the history of teams and things like that. I also just think that it's not history yet. It, there's still a lot of like, I think it was shitty that the Warriors moved to San Francisco and it was a financial decision to make more money and serve like an incredibly wealthy population that has, that lives on the peninsula and in San Francisco. And I think that that um, was harmful to the community in Oakland. They obviously lost the Raiders this year. There's this, I'm not actually sure how things have resolved with the uh, stadium for the A's, but I, I think that, it's just, um, the whole thing feels like gross and problematic and uh, harmful to Oakland. And especially when so much of the war, I mean, pretty much all of the Warriors success in the Bay area, uh, the largest amount <laughs> took place in Oakland. And I would, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing. Every time I see, some form of them hearkening back visually to that time in Oakland. It's like, well, that was like a year and a half ago and you didn't have to do this. So, you know, you, you want, and I'm sure that, you know, there could be potentially like a name change in the future, maybe to San Francisco warriors again, or something like that. I don't know, but it just is, it just doesn't feel right or good. And I think that another, another story, John, you asked about other compelling NBA narratives right now. I think that, um, Ennis Freedom is doing some bad work for someone. I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, he is he is so right in calling out uh, Nike and the IOC and other organizations that are doing harm to the world in the name of sports and partnering with with governments that are doing harm to to individuals. I um, think that he is so out of line with throwing his work colleagues 
uh, underneath the bus. I'm not even sure what the bus is necessarily that, but just this idea that he he's working for an organization that has ties to China, but going after individual players, um, it just feels like that there is no, I have no idea what, how he and believes that this will be changed or resolved or actually make change. So it seems so symbolic and not at all actually productive in any way that, that, that it could be. And it's really, it's unfortunate that he's bringing forward these points that are really important to discuss and then blaming them on people that he works with. And so that's just something that's, I'm, I'm like infuriated by that because it just, he does have a platform and he is addressing things that need to be addressed. And it's just like causing more, it's causing like um, harm and it just feels like more sort of injustice yeah. or the wrong, wrong people being blamed. A deeply problematic figure to be sure um, but I can't help because of the way my brain works, but think about how his new moniker fits in to the landscape of, of basketball names because he's, he's sort of a natural piece between world be free and meta world peace uh, <laughs> and as freedom, uh, this sort of uh, interesting history of basketball players sort of adopting a moniker, um, not simply for rebranding purposes like Chad Ochocinco in the NFL or something, but, but specifically to send a message in relationship to sort of a philosophical ideal of of a better better world, even if his methods of accomplishing that are questionable at best and involve sure. on Tucker Carlson's show and things like that. Um, all right, let's, uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, we always close on this question, uh, which is to ask about your dream basketball landscape for Forest Park. Now, I know you, you know, only encountered the park a few uh, times in a, in a very short period of time, but, um, you know, we've been working on this issue for a long time and we're thrilled that, um, that uh, the officials uh, for the city officially announced via St. Louis Public Radio that there will be basketball facilities, hopefully in 2023. Um, they, they've pretty much determined the location near the visitor center. Although if you want to dream of a different position for them in the park, we're, we're open to that too, because I, that's one of my favorite games is to imagine what the park would be like if, with the basketball courts in different places. But in any case, um, it, assuming they, they land there, uh, what kind of amenities? You, you talked about this particular uh, park that was Sarah Delano Roosevelt in, in New York, um, you, you, how buzzing that space is. How, how, can, how can the people who are designing the new courts for, for Forest Park um, make that um, basketball experience have that same level of activ activity and a sort of aesthetic um, potency that you talked about? Yes, that's such a great question. I think I have several thoughts. I mean, one of them is that that's so powerful to me about the Sarah Delano Roosevelt courts is that it's just in the middle of all these other things that are happening. You're still able to completely play a full court game, whatever you need. People are able to watch, but there's everything is taking place around it. And so I think, um, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't go by the visitor center, but just being in a place where may, there's just other activities happening, maybe, you know, in Sarah Delano Roosevelt, Delano Roosevelt Park that includes chess being played. There's like tables where people are playing chess and things like that. I think that just having basketball be played around where there's 
other sort of activities happening can be, and, you know, basketball is always going to be the loudest probably uh, just inherently, unless it's, you know, tennis or something like that. But I just think that like where, where it fits having other spaces for people to be near the game without necessarily watching the game. I think that that's a beautiful thing that you might want to be close to basketball, even if you're not watching every play or like a fan or, you know, showing up. I also think that bleachers or some place where people can sit comfortably. I know uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the West Village in New York City also uh, at this game, this uh, court at West Forth, which always gets like these amazing pickup games going. I've spent like hours with my hands in the, uh, the fencing, like holding on. And uh, I really would have loved to have some places sit down um, after a while. I mean, I think it's just, I mean, in that particular setting, there's just, they're so limited on space that, you know, it's totally fine. I, I want to earn my, my fan rights by standing up, but I think it's really nice to just make it welcoming for people who want to watch the game, want to be around, want to gather and support um, recycling and trash cans. I think if people are hanging out somewhere, we want to keep the court clean and keep it beautiful. Um, of course, uh, I work with New Crafts Artists in Action. Uh, Maria Multaney uh, leads that up and she uh, they have painted so many beautiful courts all over the country. And so I know you guys were talking earlier about perhaps bringing in an artist to do a mural on the court uh, to maybe like honor the history there or, or something that that's specific to St. Louis. That would be so powerful. Um, and lights. So it's, you know, welcoming for everyone, different times of year, different times of the day. I think that those are all things that, that I would think about. I'm sure you've already thought about a bunch of them, but uh, yeah, those are the things that I, I would look for as a, as a non-player that I hope would be conducive to, to good playing as well. I love uh, what, what I know of your work, your focus on the net too, as a, as a sort of transitive uh, thing so so I'd be interested you know I'm not to put you on the spot but to hear if you have any ideas for how the sort of signification of nets works if there's a way that artistic practice can be um, uh, sort of brought into uh, the the landscape of a basketball court via the net without compromising the sort of competitive purpose of having a net in the first place obviously but um, sure that's, that's something that I'd be curious to hear about too well, I love the net as an object and also because it has its own history within the game of basketball in the in the book that we were discussing before about the Fort Shaw um, women's team there, you know, they talk about having to release the ball after it goes, it doesn't go through, it's just caught. And the original net was kind of like a cage for the ball that would catch the ball. And then in between each basket, you'd go and have to pull down this cord, it would be released, and then you could uh, continue playing. So I've really thought about the nets individually that I've collected over time, because I was more in, interested in collecting old nets as sort of uh, recordings of that place, that the weather that passes through, the net changes, the every miss, every make, the net is witnessing though that hope, that disappointment, all the losses, all the victories, um, things that have happened on the court, uh, things that have happened nearby the court, the net is a part of those and is changing over time based on that space, based on how it's used. So I love nets. I think they're fascinating objects and uh, I think they have a lot of power. And so, I mean, I absolutely think that there is space, you know, through what I mentioned before, like more homemade nets or craft-based nets, knitting, crocheting, all of that is in this new craft artist in action tutorial. And then 
I think that there's also, you know, the nets don't have to be white. Like, I mean, just even if you want to get a net um, that a new net that, you know, is mass produced and, and, and get it printed with something that's specific to Forest Park or, or diet, something like that, where it's like, there's always like the nets are canvases and there's always a way to change them and make them specific to that, to that place or have them have a certain look. And I think that there's a lot of room there. I, I know we're supposed to go, but I got to mention uh, one of John's uh, art pieces for the Whereas Hoop Instagram account. Uh, we had a picture from the 04 Olympics, but we couldn't find anything depicting basketball. So he put and envisioned a, a hoop in the midst of this sort of, I think it's track and field scene uh, and, and, and drew it and put it in there. But on his, on his backboard, the, instead of the square box, he, he drew <laughs> an arch as a kind of uh, sort of you know, future echo. It's long before the arch was built. But I also think about that. And obviously that might compromise the, compet the competitive um, sort of landscape because the having the box to aim for on a bank shot is kind of important. But thinking about the sort of artistic presence of a backboard and the possibility of, of the, the possibilities of the arch as a signifier for the city. Um, totally, even an arch, like even just maybe it could be every other sort of square in the net is colored in so it makes an arch or something you know it's just there is and who's shooting bank shots anymore anyways <laughs> Tim Duncan's not out here <laughs> right I know exactly if Tim Duncan's not going to show up for his part you can put whatever you want on that backboard <laughs> I also want to mention just briefly that uh I started scorekeeping uh or helping with the scorekeeping at Lyon College um just you know and the timekeeping and getting involved with some of the back end parts of basketball, the logistics, uh, things that I never really thought about before. And now I'm like, those people that sit on the sidelines are geniuses because this takes a lot of, you have to be following things really closely. Meanwhile, I'm like, amazing shot. I'm missing like five things that just happened. <laughs> so I think that that has felt like another way in, in a more traditional sense, but just, again, it's research. It's just learning about the nuts and bolts and maybe not as, as exciting or compelling of a story as the, um, for child women's basketball team, but just like, it feels like I'm, I'm adding to my like bank of, of basketball knowledge and, and um, that's important. Well, thank you so much for adding to our bank of basketball knowledge on this podcast. Um, please, if you've listened this far, uh, go out and subscribe <laughs> to the Dear Adam Silver podcast. Uh, it's a fantastic listen. Um, and you can follow Abigail on, um, I think Twitter, other social medias as well. Yeah, uh, Twitter, Dear Adam Silver, and Instagram at Abigail Smithson. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It was really lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you both for having me. It was great to talk to you. Maybe settle that one in court Cause judging by the basics Y'all already comfortable stuck up in the